from deep inside your audio device of choice. Ladies and gentlemen, I don't know if you've been following the news uh, from London as I have, because I've been here in London, in, in self-said London, self-same London, aforesaid London. But um, it's, it's beginning to sound familiar. This week, the uh, London Metropolitan Police tested the cladding, the external surface layer that was applied to the Grenfell Tower high-rise apartment block in uh, North Kensington in its refurbishment just a year or two ago and found that the materials did not pass the test of being fireproof. That's the building that you probably know. Became an instant inferno when a, a freezer refrigerator had an electrical problem about uh, 10 days ago and killed at least 79 people by current measure. Now we learn in latest reporting that the company that manufactured the so-called cladding had uh, at least three different varieties of the stuff, only one of which was fireproof. The others were decorative and were not recommended by the company for buildings higher than a fireman's ladder can reach. The contractor and the um, county or borough council that owned the building decided to use the non-fireproof version. So it's it's not a natural disaster by any means. It's a it's a it's a result of at least official and probably corporate misconduct. Gee, I wonder where that's happened before. Now news of AFPAC. Drug addiction in Afghanistan once mostly limited to, because we've we pride ourselves on the progress that women have made during our 16 years in Afghanistan. We, the United States of America, this will be interesting. The drug addiction in Afghanistan, once mostly limited to men, has exploded into a nationwide scourge that affects millions of people, including a growing number of women and children. What do we tell the children? This is from the Washington Post. Over the past five years, programs of crop eradication and substitution have been largely abandoned because foreign funding has ended and insurgent attacks have increased. As a result, tens of thousands of farmers have returned to the really only money-making business they know, growing opium poppies. uh, Opium production rose 43% last year over the previous year to 48,000 tons. That's according to the U.N. office that... Counts drugs, I guess. Most Afghan opium is sold for export to the heroin trade in Europe and Russia. That's how we're getting back at Russia, right there, with an estimated revenue value of nearly a billion. But the boom has also led to a sharp drop in domestic prices, while widespread unemployment and anxiety created by years of war have fueled demand for drugs. In 2010, UN experts estimated there were about one million regular drug users in Afghanistan. They warned that addiction was Following the same hyperbolic growth of opium production, by 2015, they reported the number of addicts in the company had soared to 3 million, and more of them were using heroin. The problem has burst into the open now, overwhelming police and public health agencies. The most startling aspect of it is still largely out of sight. Tens of thousands of Afghan women, confined to their homes by tradition, often dependent on addicted men, are succumbing too creating a growing phenomenon of drug-centered households where family relations, economic stability, and social traditions can easily collapse. Job well done. Mission accomplished. And now, 
News of the Olympic Movement. Produced by Jim Eversall Jr. Well, here's good news for North Korea. They haven't had a lot this week. South Korea's sports minister, Do Jong-hwan, has suggested that the host country for the 2018 Winter Olympics, starting next February, that's South Korea, may look northward to its neighbor for help in staging the event. The Olympics come to North Korea. It's a movement. It's moving. On a trip this week to Pyeongchang to check out preparations for the Games, the minister expressed his desire for a combined effort to make the international combina- competition a success. You need North Korea to make it a success. Of course you do. Quote, hopefully we'll be able to thaw lingering tensions as we try to bring North Korea on board, he said, according to the Korea Herald. I know him. The minister said Pyeongchang 2018 could be the Peace Olympics if North Korea was to participate. Of course, the athletes would come home in a coma. But this follows reports that South Korea's new president, Moon Jae-in, has suggested the two countries lead a Northeast Northeast Asian bid to host the 2030 World Cup. It's hands across the thing. Everyone from the central government to Guangwang province and the organizing committee should come together for a successful Olympics, said Do. We need to create more buzz for the event, so it will be a festival for everyone from around the world. It has created, that suggestion, a buzz in the media with tensions around the uh, South Korea running high following the recent death of Otto Warmbier. But Doe has already begun discussions with the International Olympic Committee about possible ways to ensure North Korea's participation. So far, North Korea hasn't had any athletes qualify to compete at the Winter Games. Its last chance is a pair of figure skaters. The uh, country, North Korea, has had less than fruitful record at the Winter Olympics, having won only one silver and one bronze in eight appearances. It didn't even participate in the most recent Winter Games in Sochi. It wouldn't be the first time the two countries have joined forces to host sporting events. Earlier this year, they hosted a win- women's football tournament in the North Korean capital Pyongyang and a women's hockey competition in South Korea. The Olympics, bringing the Koreas together because it's a movement and we all need one. Every day. This is Le Show, and we uh, devote a substantial part of this broadcast to a subject that uh, was last examined here a couple of years ago uh, with a, uh, a frequent guest to this program. Uh, the world of private equity. Um, it's, I think, opaque, if not mysterious to most of us. Um, a couple of, I guess, definitional terms up front. Public equity is the stock market where anybody can go in and, and plunk your money down and kiss it goodbye or celebrate your victory. Um, private equity, you have to be invited to the party. Uh, it's not open to everybody. And it's become a go-to investment medium for, among others, the public employee pension funds. And our guest will explain why that is and what's happened subsequently. The aforementioned guest is none other than Eve Smith, founder and proprietor, proprietress, proprietor, and editor and everything good about uh, NakedCapitalism.com. And she has done a remarkable series of reports, of original reporting on uh, the 
the, the, the world of private equity and its relationship to public employee, employee pension funds, particularly the California public employee retirement system. And we're going to go deep in the weeds with her today. Welcome, Eve. Great, Terry. Thanks so much. Delighted to be here. So first of all, why do public employee pension, uh, the, the one that in, in question, CalPERS, is, uh, uh, manages the pension uh, into which teacher, uh, no, not teachers, everybody but teachers, uh, firemen, policemen, nurses in California who are on the public payroll uh, have paid in their contributions over the years. It's, it is still the largest uh, public employee pension fund in the United States? That is correct, yes. And it's and the next and the next biggest is its California sister Calsters, which does handle the teachers. That's the teachers' uh, pension fund in California. Now, in, the, in in olden times, there was this there was this monopoly called AT and T, uh, which was the phone company, and they wouldn't let you connect any other uh, equipment to their their precious phone lines. And it was the kind of stock that was uh, regarded as a widow's and orphan stock. It was the safest thing you could buy. And pension funds, I think, invested in it, too, for the same reason. It was ultimately the safe stock. We're a long way from that now, aren't we? (laughs) Right, right, right. Yeah, there's a whole long history here, and I'm hoping I can sort of simplify it um, as to sort of how we got to where we got. It used to be, to your point, that pension funds, remember, historically private companies – if anything, had more pension funds of the same of the type that the public uh, em- employee funds are now sort of the dominant players, what they call defined benefit plans, where you would work a certain number of years, there would be a formula in terms of how many years you worked, you'd get a certain percentage of your pay based on your years of service and your pay in your final years, and you'd get that for the rest of your life. That was the old defined benefits program. Most Companies have abandoned that approach and have switched over to 401k-type programs to the extent that they have any, so that they're not promising pension payment in the future. Instead, they're, you know, they're putting some money aside, and you're the one who's taking basically the market risk. Now, again, in the, in the old days of the pensions, they were managed extremely conservatively, in fact, very similarly to the way life insurers m- manage their risk, where they would project out, they would use actuaries to project out, you know, sort of what the future payments are going to be, and they would mat- they wouldn't even invest in stocks; they would match them with bonds. So they mm. would have these, la- as they call, laddered, laddered by when the bonds would mature to match very precisely, given how precise you can know the future and when people are going to, you know, how many people are going to die when, but to, to match as precisely as they could the expected exposures. Uh, in 1974, there was a law passed called ERISA. Um, which systematized how private pension funds were to be managed as a Department of Labor rule, set of rules. And even though public pension funds are not legally required to follow ERISA, they all do, basically. They, they either their states have formally adopted rules that require them to comply a lot to ERISA or, or as a matter of practice, they uh, comply with ERISA. Um, in 1978, the Department of Labor adopted a rule change to bring what they thought was bring the practice of in managing pension funds in line with what was considered to be modern finance theory, which was to allow them not to look at the risk of investment on literally like a bond-by-bond bond basis, but to look at it across their entire portfolio although that doesn't sound like a big change, it was actually a huge change and it and it had been lobbied for by the, you know, then baby 
venture capital industry to allow for investment in venture capital. It allowed for investment in stock. It allowed for it, it allowed for this pro- approach that finance people call asset allocation, where you pick what are called asset classes. You know, and the idea of an asset class is that it 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 behaves in a distinct enough manner that its return patterns are not that closely correlated with another asset class. So in the old days, all the studies were done on cash, real estate, stocks, bonds, maybe foreign stocks. You know, those were all considered to be discrete asset classes. Now, around the time when venture capital was growing up, so too was this industry, which is now lumped in with private equity. They rebranded it later on, um, of leverage buyouts. And in the mid-1980s, KKR, which is, was an early big success story in the, then the leverage buyout industry, persuaded the state of Washington to invest in uh, private equity funds, or then leverage buyout funds. And the state of Washington basically became an evangelist to all of the public pension funds. Private equity is really not a separate asset class. It's colloquially referred to as a separate asset class, and it does have some very distinctive features. It means it really needs to be managed differently, you know, in that it's got very high fees. The agreements are very complicated. You're stuck in it. You know, you don't have any control over when you get your money back, unlike the stock market. You, you the investor. You, the investor. You, the investor. You sign a contract. They have the right to demand the money. It's called a capital call. So even though you've committed, you know, say for CalPERS, the numbers are often very big, $500 million to a fund, the the fund manager says, well, here, send us, send us, send us $50 million and literally you have to send it in five or 10 days. <laughs> you know, it's send, send us $50 million because we're going to buy something. And then they also decide when they're going to sell it um, based on when they think the, uh, the time is best. And so you don't know when you're going to get your money back. So for instance, you know, the, the funds that were raised right before the crisis, you know, they expect to get their money, all their money back in 10 years. And many of those funds clearly are not going to pay out on a 10-year time frame because after the crisis, nobody was selling things. I mean, the market was so crappy and there were years where, where there just weren't that many deals done either on the buy side or the sell side. But the point is to cycle back to the 19, that's the story now, to cycle back to the 1980s. Historically, despite all the problems with the strategy, which we'll, I assume we'll get to in due course, you know, historically people made a lot of money. I mean, quite a lot of money. You know, if you were old enough to remember that time period, it was actually it was even a sort of sexy in a creepy way because you had these like swashbuckling young private equity guys riding in to these sleepy undermanaged companies. There were a huge number of companies that over diversified and were trading in the public market at what they call a conglomerate discount. The the sum of the 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 parts was greater than the whole. The value of the sum of the parts. So making money in that business at that time was easy, provided you could take over the company. The hard part was 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 you know getting the the takeover lawyers and mounting the attack uh, you know against the hostile management to take it over. But if you could take it over, it was just a slam dunk. You know you you would you would buy it with lots of debt. You'd sell off the pieces and you'd make a fortune. You could yeah. pay off the debt and still have profit left over, right? Lots of profit left over, right? So, so in those days, it was just egregiously easy if you did the the breakup analysis to make money. And so, the people who invested in that strategy did very well. 
Then they had a big bust in the uh, recession, the, the, the same recession where we had the SNL crisis and because of the early 1990s recession. And interestingly, because the SNL crisis was so terrible, basically, the fact that there was a leveraged buyout loan crisis and the, the, the later deals did really badly has not been in the collective consciousness to anywhere near the same degree. But like some of the, some of the late deals you know, were famous turkeys. Like the, there was one called the Campo deal, which was just dreadful. There was another one, um, Ohio Mattress, which was, which was later <laughs> called the burning bed. Um, in the early 90s, they had a great deal of difficulty raising money, but the funds that raised, raised money after the, um, that bad recession, the ones that were able to raise funds and, and raise money, they had a period where they could buy things that were very cheap because the stock market still hadn't recovered from that bad recession. And again, you had another tremendous run in private equity just for basically cyclical reasons from 1994 to 1999. So again, people who caught that wave, you know, did, did well. What's happened Basically, in the 2000s, starting in, you know, we had we had another sort of takeover boom right before the crisis, 2005 to 2007. And one of the differences in the character of that boom uh, relative to the earlier ones was the share of private equity relative to global equity has now gotten to be very high. It literally doubled between uh, 2004 and 2013. And, and now we've seen much more the phenomenon of too much money chasing too few deals. You know, and so right now we've got, you know, people have been acknowledging, uh, you know, even people, even the people, even the investors like this is, this is what Calster said, but the same would apply to CalPERS. The multiples that they're now paying for these companies, the multiples are how you determine the price. The multiples are just at these nosebleed high levels, and people are using phrases like the deals are priced to perfection, which means anybody <laughs> who's, who's buying now, everything has to work out right for them to do okay. Mm. And yet big firms like you know the KKR we mentioned before, Blackstone is another huge player, a firm called Carlisle is a big player, TPG is another name, Bain, Apollo. All of those are some of the, the big fish in that space. They've all been raising funds. So people have been committing more money to this, even though these, you know, what's the reasonable prospect of this going forward? Now, I have to credit CalPERS, even though I criticize CalPERS a lot. One of the things that I think CalPERS has sort of doing right, although they're, they're, they're probably going to suffer in the short term, is they have been reducing their allocation to private equity. Now, in general, you know, the people who advise them, you know, say, you know, you should make market timing bets. And this is, a, you know, effectively, they're making a timing bet on private equity, basically saying the prices are so high, we're going to pull some money off the table and reduce our allocation. So, but that's not the, the trend of the entire industry. Oh, and to back up, to back up one more key point on the public pension funds, what isn't recognized back to that historical story about Washington sort of evangelizing mm -hmm. to the industry. The reason for tying the funds like CalPERS to private equity is that they are the biggest, collectively the biggest investors in private equity. In fact, we had an insider write one of our first posts um, on private equity back in 2013. We started covering it and he called it a government-sponsored enterprise. That that's how significant mm. the public pension fund contribution is. And of course, the second part is that because they use leverage, they're very dependent on the tax breaks. You know, it's really you know one of uh, one of my friends is a is a is a tax expert, uh, Lee Shepard. She's sort of a world recognized tax expert, and she this is as close to an exact quote I can get. She she called it. She said private equity often resembles a tax shelter with an acquisition attached. <laughs> now, uh, in the current era, 
if, correct me if I'm wrong, but I understand that one reason that public employee fan, pension funds like CalPERS have been heavy in private equity is because we've been in a low interest rate environment and they're chasing higher yield wherever they can find it, right? That is correct. And this is um, one of the uh, bad, you can almost call it a bad effect by design of the way the various central banks around the world, including our Federal Reserve, handled the crisis. What they did is they dropped, you know, they dropped rates super low. They basically have a complicated explanation that it's going, it's supposed to stimulate economic activity by encouraging borrowing and encouraging a wealth effect. Well, wealthy people don't have the same propensity to spend as poor people. <laughs> you know, even when they make a lot of money, they're not going to go buy 10 more yachts. You know, they might instead buy 10 more paintings, and that doesn't really contribute to economic activity. And part of it, which, you know, mo pretty much everybody who is an informed financial commentator believes, and economic commentators, another big motivation was explicitly just to increase the prices of financial assets because the banks themselves were very much exposed to financial assets of various, various sorts. You know, the bad mortgages, the Fed didn't buy those directly, contrary to popular perception. They bought better mortgages in their, quanti uh, in their quantitative easing program. But the point, the idea was that if, you know, asset prices went up, surely this would help all the, the financial players make more money, and that would help the banking system, and that would help get the banks to recovery faster. So that was kind of the logic. But the effect of these super low rates is that they drive everybody. I mean, not just the, pu the public pension funds are a particularly visible example, but they've driven basically everybody into riskier assets, and private equity is a particularly risky asset because of all the debt they use. You know, it's basically, informally, it's basically what you would call levered equity. You know, you and I could, you know, approximate private equity. The problem is you can't, we can't get the same level of, you know, uh, you know, broker loans against a, a, you know, if you were to have a buy stocks individually through brokerage and then and then lever them up, we couldn't achieve the same leverage that the private equity firms effectively achieve. But that would be the approximation would be buying stock on margin. Hmm. You mentioned the private equity contracts; they are opaque. You've had to uh, go through various sources to make any of the contracts uh, that uh, public pension funds have with uh, private equity firms public, because uh, even though public pension funds are by definition public, uh, they are constrained by their uh, friends on the private equity side not to make those agreements public. Uh, and you've, you've sort of forced some of them in the, into the public view. Right, right. And as that's happened, there's been pushback at, at CalPERS, and you've, you've chronicled the adventures of a <laughs> board member uh, in trying to make more of this information public. Tell us a little bit about his story. Oh, the whole the whole dynamic is just really quite remarkable, and 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 it's a symptom. And again, again, as much as we're critical of Calpers, their behavior is symptomatic of everybody in public pension funds. So I really want to stress that Calpers is not unusual in this. What is and the reason that Calpers is is a focus is that they're an industry leader, and so what happens that Calpers has the potential to move. Um, the entire public, you know, practice the entire public pension fund industry, but um, the, uh, the the board member J.J. Jelensic also happens to be the most skilled board member at Calpers because he has a peculiar role in that he is a member of Calpers staff who ran for the board, 
which creates some, a few conflicts that way. They have some elected board members. So he's actually the most technically knowledgeable person on the board, which should be a plus, and it's turning out to be a minus for him. How peculiar in terms of you know his sort of life on a day-to-day basis. He has asked actually what are, have been very straightforward questions about the fees being paid and has exposed either completely disingenuous responses or shocking lacks of knowledge on, beha- on behalf of the former head of the private equity program he left earlier this year, and basically flat-out lying by the chief operating investment officer. And the reason these fees matter, it may seem sort of picayune to be worrying about fees, but the fees in private equity are massive. Uh, Professor Ludovic Fallopu of Oxford, who's one of the few academics who writes objectively about private equity because everybody else, literally everybody, other academic expert in private equity is getting paid huge consulting fees by mm. private equity firms. So you've got, a, you've got a problem in academia that there's a rather limited amount of um, research that's really trying to get at the bottom of things. Which, and that's, as an aside, that's a departure in financial economics. Basically, the rest of financial economics research, like into hedge funds and into equity strategies, is, is, it's extremely skeptical of investment managers. So uh, that already gives you a sign of... Mm. There's something funny going on here. But Ludovic Fallopu has estimated that the total fees per year that private equity firms extract is 7%. 7%. It's just this enormous number and no one has disputed it, right? No, you know, you would think if his number was not in the ballpark, somebody would have come out and said, oh, no, that's really wrong and Fallopu's a hysteric. You know, so this number seems to be roughly right, you know, just based on the lack of pushback. In fact, CalPERS even used, you know, which presumably has access to the data, used that his number as a – without crediting him as a proxy in a presentation, internal presentation they gave a couple of years ago. So the point is the reason that it's important to question these private equity fees are sort of twofold. One is that just, they're just so egregious in aggregate with private equity returns now being much lower than they used to if these public pension funds could negotiate more aggressively, you know, or start doing more in-house, they could recover a lot of these fees and private equity would return better. It would make, you know, more sense as a strategy now on a risk-adjusted basis. One of the parts of the story I sort of, you know, didn't fill in in this long historical narrative, it was sort of implied. But if you look back at the returns that the public pension funds have been getting from basically 10 years ago onward, they typically are not making enough to, to pay them for the extra risk. You know, private equity is riskier than stocks, they should they should be paid extra for the, the fact that it's illiquid, that they're stuck with these guys for 10 years, whether they're doing any – roughly 10 years, whether they're doing a good job or not, and the extra leverage, which, you know, when it, when leverage works, you make more, and when it doesn't work, you lose more. So they're – and their um, benchmarks, they call – they have bench, – all these places have basically standards for measuring performance. They're, you can look back on there, and they are largely, if not entirely – falling below the, the benchmarks for private equity over the last 10-year period. So the crit- criticism is legitimate. You know, if, if you're not being paid enough for your risk in private equity, why are you still there? And to sort of the question you kind of asked at the beginning, why are, why are people still investing in it? And your reference to you know uh, what the central banks have been doing, 
they, they're desperate for any kind of return. And the Fed has basically pushed people into all kinds of investments where people are not getting enough a return. And that's what happens when you have a, um, negative real interest rate environment where the, 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 the short-term interest rates are below the rate of inflation. You're, you're systematically not getting paid enough for risk. So it just is worse in private equity. It's worse and more visible because it's one of the riskiest types of investments. So, all these investors are in just a big conundrum created by the Fed. So it looks like it's their fault. And, I, and I'm critical of them because I, there are things they could do to alleviate the situation. There are no tidy solutions here. But, uh, you know, this is this is a big mess that, that everybody's trying to pretend isn't happening. And I assume that if they're not meeting their benchmark uh, as investors – public pension funds are in danger of not having the money they need at any given point to pay the pensions they're obligated to pay out. That is true. And and just, again, I don't want to sound like I'm, you know, opposed to public pension funds. Private investors have the same problem. Mm -hmm. So people in their 401ks are in exactly the same boat and worse off because they pay more fees. So as bad as it is for the public pension funds, it's going to be worse for any individual. And the same picture is going to be similar for an individual investor. So let's just remember that when we're thinking about the mess that the public pension funds are in. Um, but generally speaking, yes. And, and these funds were, you know, like CalPERS was adequately funded before the crisis. It took a big hit in the crisis. And remember, it still had to keep paying benefits out of its shrunken assets post-crisis because it still had ongoing commitments. You know, people, you know, were retired. It still had to keep, keep paying money out. So that's been that and then the low return environment post the crisis has been what has created the funding problems at all these public pension funds. Now, there are some in the U.S. that are, that are just, you know, walking disasters because they're so corrupt. Like Kentucky is, you know, Kentucky is disastrously underfunded. You know, New Jersey is disastrously underfunded. Wait, 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 wait a minute. There's corruption in New Jersey? <laughs> yes, that's right. Yes, exactly. Aside from the corruption, you know, they made a decision. Christy Todd Whitman made a decision to underfund in the early nine. You know, in the early nineties when everything was fine. So, so they 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 basically decided to kind of wreck their pension system. But even pension funds that were responsibly you know managed have been just you know whacked by the effects of the crisis. And there are a few that are that are doing okay. Like I don't want to imply that they're all having funding trouble. I mean, the San Fran the San Francisco's pension fund is actually pretty well funded. But, you know, if you look at the you know public pension funds as a whole, most of them are having underfunding problems of, of varying degrees of severity. For example, CalPERS and CalSTRS are both at around 63, 64% funding. Um, I think Cal, CalSTRS is 64 and CalPERS is 63. And that sounds really alarming. In fact, 80%, they were actually at a higher level pre-crisis, but 80, over 80% is considered to be okay because they invest in riskier investments and it's assumed that kind of over time the bets on riskier investments will enable them to make a, a, a you know, less than 100% funding level work out. You know, that's another big conversation to have between the investment people and the actuary. So, but it's still a bad, but trust me, the, early, the low 60s is a bad number. It's not a good number and they have a problem. Getting back to so. getting back to Calpers, uh, so this Mr. Jelinsik has been uh, agitating for more transparency in the relationship between Calpers and the 
private equity business. Is he still in danger of being kicked off the board? Uh, well, he's retiring. Oh. They were trying to kick him off the board, which, yes, I'm glad you bring that up because that was just scandalous. He was threatened in a um, board meeting this year, which would not have been recorded except one of our uh, colleagues, Michael Flareman, who interestingly is a former CalPERS board member who is now running for the board. He's actually running for Jalensic's seat videoed it. But what happened was just scandalous. I mean, there was, in fact, a uh, uh, Bill Black, who's a uh, law professor and also white-collar criminologist, just really called out. I mean, we did too. But Bill Black is a former general counsel. And he just called out in sort of brutal detail how outrageous what happened was. You know, one board member, Bill Slayton, got up and made these vitriolic accusations against Jelensic with no substantiation, no spec- no not even specificity, and and said that he either needed to resign or that uh, he needed to be kicked off the board, and they don't even have the legal authority to do that. And the general counsel not only didn't stop this, I and mean, procedurally he should have demand he he should have demanded that Slayton, you know, basically either produce the goods or really back down, and he didn't. Nor did he even correct Slayton. That he that that you know that basically the board's ability to sanction Jelensic was quite limited. I mean, it was just st- stunningly poor, and it's it's indicative of, frankly, a level of cultural corruption at Calpers. I mean, there's not there's no evidence of financial corruption, but the place the place is just really degenerated to a shocking degree in terms of its governance procedures. The board has basically acted, except Jelensic, has acted as if its job is to abdicate all responsibility to staff, save as acting for their cheerleaders. And it's completely appalling. It's completely appalling. I cannot say in strong enough terms how deplorable the conduct of the board is, except for Jelensic, and, and, and how, frankly, dreadful it is that the staff has gone about systematically working to eliminate any oversight by the board. It has been orchestrated by the staff. And that's why I deem that to be corrupt. For for government officials to operate in that manner is deplorable. I can put no stronger words on it. It is deplorable. Now, uh, based on the reporting I've been reading in your, in your uh, dispatches, uh, one can always only speculate about why a staff would be bending over backwards to avoid uh, tr- the transparency demanded or requested by a board member. But um, you you have reported on more than one occasion that it is the practice of private equity firms to uh, almost threaten, if not outright threaten, that uh, their customers, uh, investors, would no longer be welcome at the table uh, and to use casino language, if they made these agreements public or they made this this information public about fee structures and so forth, is that the best guess we can make about the motivation of the staff? Well, yes. The, there's, it is a very complicated psychological question. Why are people behaving this way in the absence of payoffs, right? Mm-hmm, because mm-hmm. it looks like the behavior you would expect if there were payoffs. And in fact, Again, if we go back to places like, you know, the corrupt places like Kentucky, you know, they invest in really terrible private equity funds. You know, you've got lots of reasons to believe payoffs are happening. Mm-hmm. You know, CalPERS is working very hard to try to invest in the better of the private equity funds. You know, the only kind of payoffs they get are the kind of soft corruption that exists everywhere in the private equity industry where where the staff do get flown 
to, you know, annual meetings where they get fed, you know, terrific food and wine and see uh, top entertain the big fun see top entertainment you know one one someone leaked the fact he put up even the video of Elton John performing at one of these private equity conferences and that's coming out of the pension funds and dime that you know the, the private equity firm is not taking it out of its profits they're they're charging that back as an expense to the fund well when so, you say when just, just just to clarify when you say the pension funds dime you mean ultimately the retirees dime yeah, ultimately yeah. ultimately it's being charged back to the fund investors yeah of of which the fund manager is only a very small portion. They do put some money in, but it's like one to three percent. So it's overwhelmingly the the price of seeing Elton John is coming out of you know everybody's hide. So we don't talk you know they don't talk about stuff and they fly on private jets, which you know in terms of absolute dollars is is not that large. But again, the optics are just dreadful, mm-hmm. right? You know why why are public you know school teachers and bus drivers and uh, cops why are their pension funds going to pay for travel on private you know mm-hmm. private jet when the overwhelming majority of the time it is there there are times when if you're having to go from you know boondocks a to boondocks b or secondary city a to boondocks b a <laughs> private jet actually is cheaper but the overwhelming majority of the time it's not plus there's lots of evidence that you know there are abuses i mean that people have tracked the tail numbers of these planes and seen that they go to Ham- the hamptons on the weekends in the summer and that they go to you know that they also somehow converge on the location of the super bowl on super bowl sunday <laughs> um so there's you know there's a lot of sort of petty you know cheating cheating going on that adds up to you know, fair number of dollars. But the point is that, to your point, this is there's a, there's a tremendous amount of psychological capture, even more so now that the funds are so desperate for returns. They, they believe that they have to be in private equity in order to make their return targets, that they must be in this strategy. And then to the point about secrecy, now in fairness, that's actually the part of the contracts, that they, that they sign these contracts with which have you know very tough non-disclosure terms, and on top of that, when there started to be a bit of transparency, and ironically, it came about with Calpers in in the early 2000s. There was a successful s- suit by the Mercury News to force Calpers to disclose some of its private equity return numbers. So that's one of the reasons we do have some insight into what happens in private equity. Calpers invests in so many funds; every quarter, it discloses what it's making on those funds, you know, plus a few other mm-hmm. statistics about the funds. Mm-hmm. And that has served Calpers isn't Calpers invested in so many funds that served as like a good proxy for what was happening in the private equity industry, particularly for the big funds. People would look and say, oh, well, I know how Blackstone Seven is doing, you know, I can see it on Calpers website. The industry ran around and in 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 virtual in every state, they either got legislation or state attorney general's opinions that um, protected the secrecy of private equity contracts. In California, it's actually in the in the California Constitution, believe it or not. <laughs> and so they are not permitted to disclose the contracts even if they wanted to. So the, the information that Jalentic is asking about the fee information is not, um, you know, he's been asking at a fairly high level of abstraction. He's not been asking about, you know, tell me what... This particular KKR fund is doing. He's actually been asking sort of more general portfolio level questions, and he's either been getting flummoxed responses or um, you know deflections, and then the staff has gotten really angry as if he's persecuting them. 
And then CalPERS makes these spurious claims that they're leaders in disclosures on fees. That's absolutely, in fact, that the chief investment officer got up and, and said something to that effect early this week. And that's false. That's false. CalPERS own consultant, CEM benchmarking, which is, which is basically effectively an industry standard setter, has held out uh, two funds as the leaders in getting the information about private equity fees, and that's South Carolina and uh, one of the Texas funds, I think Texas Municipal, I should know which particular Texas fund, but they're two, they're two pen- public pension funds. They've held out at the, as the standard setters, uh, and they're far ahead of CalPERS in terms of the, the level of information they get. And for CalPERS to whinge that their leaders in transparency and they're somehow persecuted just isn't isn't true. I mean, it's just not true. And yet, and yet they they appear to believe this quite sincerely. I got to ask a naive question uh, because it's asked in other contexts all the time. If you got nothing to hide, why the secrecy? Well, again, another problem which we haven't really discussed is that private equity has been found out to be cheating on a very significant basis. Now, it's. It's not uh, there. The SEC and now, you know, under the Trump regime, this isn't going to go forward. Not that the old SEC uh, under Obama was that enthusiastic, but at least they did something. The SEC, as a result of Dodd Frank, was given supervision over part of the activities of private equity. Not all of them, but they were given supervision over their roles as, as investment advisors. And so now. The private equity firms are subject to SEC audits, and they have to file a form once a year called Form ADVs, which uh, explain, you know, they're supposed to explain a whole bunch of things they're doing. Well, it turns out you could look at their Form ADVs, and there were some people who had better access. I mean, I've, I've been able to get a few contracts and publish them on my site. I've got, I think, 26 now mm-hmm. private equity contracts. There were some people who had um, individuals who had better access to the private equity contracts who went through them systematically and and found that even just looking at the Form ADVs, that what they said in the Form ADVs were basically admitting they were cheating on the contracts. <laughs> and here the private equity investors themselves weren't doing that. What what are these guys doing all day? You know, they should be they should be sitting in their offices reading about this stuff and at least making a stink. <laughs> You know, I mean, even if they can't claw it back historically, they should be calling these, you know, the, the general partners up and saying, cut this out. And yet they're apparently afraid to because they're afraid not to get asked to the next, you know, to the next deal. Um, I mean, again, it, it's, a, it's a really appalling degree of, of complacency here among the, the limited partners. I mean, they really just they, they really believe that they don't have the power when in kind of any other you know, area of investing, it's the, it's the money that calls the shots. You know, the idea that they as the investors you know, don't have any power is just sort of an astonishing notion. And oh, to back to your original point, the sort yeah. of threat that they won't be led into funds, mm-hmm. even though that's the widespread belief, the only time this has actually happened – um, is kind of a nothing burger. When that Mercury News came, case came through and CalPERS was forced to disclose its return information on a regular basis, two funds got up, Sequoia and I think it was um, Kleiner Perkins, got up and made a stink and said, well, we're not going to let anybody into our club who's going to make those kind of disclosures. And the implication was that other public you know, pension funds like CalPERS might start doing it too. Public pension funds and CalPERS in particular don't invest in venture capital very much because it's it it it's basically endowments and foundations and places like that it's the the what you put in it vc funds are so much smaller mm. that they just can't put enough money in them and then on top of that 
You know, there's this, there's this, you know, urban legend that, oh, people were really hurt by not investing in Sequoia. Sequoia's flagship fund, they've got like a bigger fund that, that uh, you know, that's the one that they advertise their results in. That, fl- that fund apparently does perform extremely well. However, you don't get to invest in Sequoia's flagship fund only. The price of investing in their flagship fund is you also have to invest in their China fund, their in whatever sort of other cat and dog funds they have. <laughs> and the blended return is not is, is rumored to be not very good. So even this notion that, oh, people have been hurt by the one known instance of people being deprived of in the, the opportunity to invest in a good fund is not true when you examine, when you turn over enough rocks. So J.J. Jelinczyk is retired. Has has he been replaced? Oh, the... he's retiring. He's, he's retiring. retiring. His term ends in – he's, he's on the board to the end of the year, but he's retiring. And yes. has he been replaced by somebody, uh, as you suggested, who's uh, equally interested in trying to uh... – Well, we have we have people – we have uh, Michael Flareman who's running who's equally interested, but the, the, in, the, uh, the board elections aren't being held until – um, I believe I believe that the ballots are open for a month, and I think it's I think it's like the first week in September to the first week in October. So we don't know who will take Jalen succeed. And uh-huh. among the members of the board are California State Treasurer and other pu- public officials in the state of California. Right, right. So the the composition of the board is it has thirteen mm-hmm. members. Uh, six of them are elected by beneficiaries. Six of them are basically. Uh, uh, state officials or appointees. So you've got the the state treasurer, uh, John Chang, state controller Betty Yi. Uh, there's there's a three member state personnel board, and one member of the personnel board is always um, on the Calpers board. Then there are two people. I'm I'm, I'm going to miss one in this count, but there are two people who are appointed by the governor. I think one is a community banking representative. Is that uh, the name of Bill Slayton's slot? And there's one that's an insurance. That's in, you know an insurance representative because there's all this actuarial stuff. Mm-hmm. An insurance person presumably understands the actuarial stuff, and then there's one that's appointed a public representative that's appointed effectively by the legislature. Basically, there are seven that are non-elected, and there are six that are elected. Mm. So this the, the future of what happens at Calpers and its effect on other public employee pension funds is is up in the air uh, until at yeah. least the fall of this year. Yeah, no, that's right. And if I'm not mistaken, the Federal Reserve has sent signals now that it's not going to be raising interest rates anymore in the immediate future, right? Right. Well, actually, it's a little more complicated. The close Fed watchers seem to believe that the Fed actually sort of recognizes that this kind of experiment with super low interest rates has not worked out as they intended. And that it also separately leaves them with no room to drop rates in a crisis. So they really want to get out of the corner that they've backed themselves into. And they're looking for sort of any good run of economic news they can find, any signs of, you know, vibrancy or, you know, incipient vibrancy or what they could point to as vibrancy in the economy. Possible incipient vibrancy. Possible incipient vibrancy to move rates up, Mm. (laughs) you know. And we had had a run of, you know, reasonable looking – Employment reports. Uh, so they did stick with their plan to raise rates in June, but you know things have started looking you know a little bit less. And it wasn't like this. You know, it isn't like the employment market is that strong anyhow. I mean, even though the unemployment rate is really low, the quality of the jobs created 
has been terrible and a lot of them have been part-time jobs. I mean a part-time job still gets counted as a job. So we mm-hmm. also have the syndrome that many full-time jobs have been replaced by part-time jobs. So the employment rate really doesn't tell that whole story. So we've got a, you know, we've got a large degree of underemployment in this economy and yet the Fed feels compelled to raise interest rates because it, it you know, it, it recognizes that where we, we are isn't very good either. You know, mm-hmm. they're kind of in a box. Wow. Well, um, we will stay tuned. Uh, Eve Smith, thank you for making it all at, at least, if not easily comprehensible, uh, comprehensible beyond the expectations of a normal person. And uh, Well, that's very kind. Thank you. And thanks for your pointing out this week that uh, the media missed the whole thrust of the story on uh, the mortgage problem by focusing on robo-signing instead of document forgery, which I thought was a, a point... You've made way back when, and it was great to see you uh, make it again. Uh, Well, thank you. Appreciate that. And uh, we'll talk to you again soon. uh, Eve Smith of of NakedCapitalism.com, thanks for being with us. Thanks again. And now, the Apologies of the Week. The Wall Street Journal this week fired its highly regarded chief foreign affairs correspondent after evidence emerged of his involvement in prospective commercial deals, including one involving arms sales to foreign governments, with an international businessman who happened to be one of his key sources. The reporter Jay Solomon was offered a 10% stake in a fledgling company. We're dismayed by the actions and poor judgment of Solomon, said the journal's spokesman in a written statement. I clearly made mistakes in my reporting and entered into a world I didn't, underst- didn't understand, Solomon told the AP. I never entered into any business with Farhad Azima, nor did I ever intend to, but I understand why the emails and conversations I had with Mr. Azima may look like I was involved in some seriously troubling activities. I apologize to my bosses and colleagues at the Journal, who were nothing but great to me. Journal owned by News Corp. I mean, Nice Corp. Johnny Depp is the latest celebrity to apologize for making fun of the idea of killing the President of the United States. Quote, I apologize for the bad joke I attempted last night in poor taste about President Trump. He said in a statement made exclusively to People magazine, God, what a scoop. I did not come out as intended, and I it, it did not come out as intended. I guess Johnny hasn't come out. And I intended no malice. I was only trying to amuse, not to harm anyone. But he had said at uh, the Glastonbury Festival, Hey! I've been there. He said, this is going to be in the press and it will be horrible. When was the last time an actor assassinated a president? After posing the question, Depp added, I want to clarify, I'm not an actor. I lie for a living. However, it's been a while and maybe it's time, unquote. Well, he said one true thing there. NASA just schooled Gwyneth Paltrow about wellness stickers promoted on her lifestyle blog, Goop. Goop said in a post that the stickers which are sold by Body Vibes are made with the same conductive carbon material NASA uses to line spacesuits so they can monitor an astronaut's vitals during wear and can target energetic frequency imbalances in the body. Stickers are sold 10 for $60. A representative from NASA told Gizmodo they do not have any conductive carbon material lining the spacesuits. They're actually made of synthetic polymers, spandex, and other materials NASA spokeswoman Tabitha Thompson told the Washington Post that actually NASA does not use carbon fiber anywhere in the spacesuits. Like anywhere. By Friday morning, Goop had removed the reference to NASA materials from the product description on its website. 
Body Vibes, which sells the stickers, has apologized to NASA, Goop, and its customers. We never intended to mislead anyone, the company said. We've learned that our engineer was misinformed by a distributor about the material in question, which was purchased for its unique specifications. We regret not doing our due diligence before holding the distributor's information, or before including the distributor's information in the story of our product. But what a story. Australian Broadcasting Corporation radio host Red Simons asked a Taiwanese-Canadian journalist, Beverly Wang, Are you yellow? Wang, who also works for That ABC, was being interviewed about her podcast called It's Not a Race. The ABC, down under, apologized and unpublished the full recording of the radio interview. Similarly, Simons has apologized on June 19th's program for coming across as a racist and inappropriate I came across as a racist and I was wrong in the way I conducted the interview. This is not who I am. I offer my sincerest apologies. We need to talk about these issues and be careful how we consider them. ABC also apologized and said it was reviewing the matter. This is their ABC. Down under. Charleston River Dogs general manager Dave Eccles has apologized to those offended by the team poking fun at Columbia outfielder Tim Tebow last weekend. This is minor league baseball in case you didn't know. On the first game for Tebow and the Fireflies in Charleston, the River Dogs, which lists comedian Bill Murray as a co-owner, took several jabs at the Heisman Trophy winner, playing his first full season of pro baseball. Hey, it worked for Michael Jordan. Oh, the River Dogs mascot wore eye black with the Bible verse John 3.16, like Tebow did when he was in his football years. Team also played the Hallelujah Chorus every time Tebow came up to bat. While we believe that our promotions were poking fun at Mr. Tebow's celebrity status rather than his religion or baseball career, our intent was not to intend anyone. And for the fact that we did offend, we're sorry, said General Manager Dave Eccles. General Manager Dave Eccles. The chairman of the Florida's Democratic Party apologized to members of the Legislative Black Caucus this week after reportedly calling them childish during a dispute related to a South Florida fundraising. It's all going good for the Democratic Party this week. Biddle had said members of the caucus were acting childish and accused them of playing the race card when he was confronted over the incident. Biddle apologized multiple times during Tuesday's meeting after he spent several days apologizing to party leaders, both both elected politicians and fundraisers. Biddle uh, issued a statement after the meeting saying it was time to move forward. You rarely see a statement issued saying the opposite, do you? An Indian-American landlord in Queens, New York, has apologized for having sent letters to the tenants in his building demanding they prove they're in this, uh, the United States ille- uh, legally or risk eviction, according to the New York Daily News. State Senator Jose Paralta, furious upon learning about the letters, filed a complaint with the state attorney general's office. When the Daily News confronted landlord, landlord Jaydeep, Jaydeep Reddy with the letter, he apologized. That's wrong, he told the news. I'll retract that. I'm sorry. Wheel of Fortune has apologized for using a backdrop for its Southern Charm Week that appeared to show African-Americans dressed as slaves on a plantation. Harry Friedman, the show's executive producer, apologized for the image and said it would not be used in reruns when the episode was rebroadcast. How do they do that? We regret the use of this background image and we will be replacing it moving forward on any rebroadcast. Wow. They could also change the winners. The photo was shot on location at Oak Alley plantation in Vachery, Louisiana. The spokesperson for the plantation said the plantation does not have actors portraying slaves, but people do dress up in the clothing of that era to give tours. People of all races are employed by the plantation. A friend of mine suggests 
plantations be renamed slave labor camps, just to make things clear. Uber, Uber has apologized to some of its users, but not everyone is willing to forgive and forget. It sent an apology to some of its former customers in an effort to win them back, according to Business Insider. In an email, Uber reportedly said, in expanding so quickly, we failed to prioritize the people that helped get us here. We realize we've fallen short. The email was reportedly sent to users in several communities who hadn't used the app to hail a car in some time. But uh, Susan Fowler, the ex-Uber engineer who published a blog post saying there was sexual harassment and discrimination at the company, said she was critical of the apology. It was all done, she said, for show and optics. Gee, that sets it apart from all of the... The longtime director of an arts festival in New Zealand has apologized for removing the word Israel from a song in the musical Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, scheduled to be performed there. May Pritchard sent in a letter to uh, a regional Jewish council and other critics of the change. The original words would be reinstated. The phrase, children of Israel are never alone, in the song Close Every Door, had been altered to children of kindness. And the Dinwiddie High School seniors in Dinwiddie, Virginia, got... Uh, Diplomas with the word Virginia spelled incorrectly. We apologize, said the school system, for any inconvenience this error has caused. Virginia. Hey, Virginia. The apologies of the week, ladies and gentlemen, a copyrighted feature of this broadcast. Ladies and gentlemen, that's going to conclude this week's edition of the show. The program returns next week at the same time over these same stations over NPR worldwide throughout Europe. The USN 440 cable system in Japan around the world through the facilities of the American Forces Network up and down the east coast of North America via the shortwave giant WBCQ, the planet, on the mighty 104 in Berlin, on the ultra-mighty Soho Radio in London, around the world via the Internet at two different locations, live and archived whenever you want it, at harryshearer.com and KCSN. Org, available for your smartphone through Stitcher.com and available as a free podcast from Sideshow Network, SoundCloud, TuneIn.com, iTunes, and WWNO.org. And it'll be just like officials and corporations not engaging in misfeasance to kill people. If you would agree to join with me then, would you already? Thank you very much. Uh-huh. Tip of the show, chapeau to the San Diego, Pittsburgh, Chicago, in exile and Hawaii desk. Thanks, as always. To Pam Halstead and to Jenny Lawson at WWNO in New Orleans, as well as to Paul Roost at Argo Studios in New York and Alex Fielding at Hackerbacker Audio Post here in London for help with today's broadcast. The email address for this program, a playlist of the music here to hear on, and your chance to get Cars I Talk t-shirts for the whole family. That's all at harryshearer.com, and I'm on Twitter at the Harry Shearer. The show comes to you from Century of Progress Productions and originates through the facilities of WWNO New Orleans, flagship station of the Change is Easy radio network. So long from London Town. <laughs>